Hey, y'all. I'm Mace Kerwick. And I'm Javi Ungo. And this is Queer Town. As many of our longtime listeners know, we live, work, and play in Austin, Texas. And shit just keeps getting worse out here. A horrifyingly large number of anti-LGBTQ bills were filed in the Texas legislature this year. As well as several other bills that could potentially chip away at public education, libraries, and voting rights. So with so much at stake, this episode of Queer Town is very specifically shining a light on what's going on in Texas right now. And how the queer community can fight back against oppression, which is intentionally becoming an increasingly complex thing to do. Fortunately, we've called in two experts to help facilitate this conversation. Please welcome to the stage Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street. Ooh. You're gay uncles here to talk about the legislature. Honestly, that's a great bit for us. <laughs> Which one are you? Like, Which, who's who? Uh, I don't remember the difference. I want to be the one in the bathtub. Mm. Is one of them in the bathtub the, a lot? Yeah. Ernie. Yeah, that's Ernie. Ernie. That's Ernie. Ready, okay. Rubber ducky, you're the one. I am. Thank you. <laughs> I guess, I guess, yeah, I could be the other one. <laughs> one of them's orange and one of them's yellow. So is this now, I'm bringing race into it. Okay, we need to properly introduce <laughs> you. Oh <my> <laughs> <laughs> Adri Hi. is back on Queer Town. Please remind our listeners right on, what you do, who you are, all that stuff. Since I was last with you all, yeah. I've changed jobs. Oh. I'm now the organizing director at Texas Freedom Network, a professional rabble rouser, and at the Capitol at least three times a week. Hey. There you go. Perfect for this conversation. And joining us for the first time in Queer Town is the one and only Charlie Bonner. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm Charlie. Um, I mostly focus on voting rights around the Capitol um, and for several years have focused on youth civic engagement and voter rights in um, Texas. Right now I serve as a consultant, so I work with advocacy organizations across the country to help them hone their messages and talk to the press um, and focus a lot on the fun parts about politics, I think. I like to think anyways. Um, and so I work a lot with cultural organizing and helping artists and musicians and drag queens and poets and all sorts of folks uh, make their voices heard. Fuck yeah. That's incredible. Well, the two of you have clearly spent a lot of time at the Capitol, not only for this session, but over the past few years. So uh, thank you for gracing the Queertown Clubhouse with your expertise, your knowledge, and your just uh, general fabulosity. I think something that would be really helpful is I don't work in politics. I've worked for political campaigns, but y'all are boots on the ground doing movement work on a very, you know, day-to-day -day basis. And for anyone who might be listening to this who is not uh, particularly in the know, I think there's a lot about what's going on at the state level that's really uh, intentionally confusing, right? So I'd love to sort of talk about this conversation that's going on right now with the bills and how it is that bills come to be, how they are approved, how they are passed. Um, could you sort of walk us through what the hell that even is? You know, there's a basic format to how this all happens, and then there's this particular legislative cycle where all of the rules appear to not matter a single bit at all. Indeed. Um, and, every, and you'll hear everybody say that when they talk about this particular session. It is entirely overwhelming, the amount of bills trying to strip away our rights, whether it's voting rights or the attack on the LGBTQ community, the attack on our students, our libraries, mm -hmm. our schools, and the curriculum, and the funding streams for schools even. It's really, it feels very unprecedented. And folks who have been in the Capitol who are very old and look like they've been there for several decades, <laughs> even like, they... Talk about me like that, okay? <laughs> I'm a spring chicken, okay? Uh, even they come up to me and they say, well, it's all gone to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, even God. Republicans aren't having fun anymore. That's when you know it's bad. <laughs> you know, when a guy that looks like Colonel Sanders comes up to you and is telling you that it's gone to hell, you're and you're standing there as a queer, trans, first-generation immigrant, like, uh, well, what can I do to make this better? But what... I was doing today was standing outside of the Capitol for about four hours with coffee and pastries, trying to get people to drop a card. And what that means is that you come to the Capitol, you log on to the Wi-Fi, you click a couple buttons and register your support or your opposition for a bill. And, you know, it, I talked to so many people today who did it for the very first time. Mm -hmm. 
and they didn't know that you could do this. And they felt so engaged and aware and informed and excited to continue participating. And so what I've been doing really since the beginning of my career, when I was a student on college campuses registering voters, was just trying to get people to participate with democracy. I don't even care if you're maybe against my values on a particular issue. I just want you to pay attention because I know that no matter where you fall on a spectrum, if you start paying attention, you're going to agree with me eventually. Then you'll see what is right and what is good in the world and want to make a difference to participate with it. Um, it's, I like think about this in much of the same way too. And I, we would always say uh, back when I was at Move Texas that focused specifically on campus organization, our organizers more than anything else were civics teachers. Mm-hmm. That the single biggest barrier for folks to getting involved is understanding what's going on, yeah. right? Um, and the amount of information that we receive, right? And the hopelessness. So I think even even taking a step back, right? Like, so when we're in a legislative session right now, which is the, the statewide kind of legislative body. So we're, we're talking about statewide policy, not federal, not stuff happening on the local level. Mm-hmm. And Texas is one of the only states in the country that meets, um, their legislature meets every other year. It's constitutionally designed not to operate, not to pass bills. Um, they can only actually pass bills for half of that time period. So we're talking about basically three months every two years that one, the 10th largest economy in the world passes all of its legislation. Fuck. Um, and the only thing that they have to do during that legislative session is balance the budget. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so everything else is just a free for all of bullshit. Okay. And so every member, both on the House and Senate side, can file as many bills as they want. This time, I think we're numbering over 4,000. Definitely over 5,000. 5,000 5, this year. Um, the vast majority of those will never see the light of day, right? And so in this very short amount of time, they are trying to take those 5,000 bills and decide what kind of bullshit they are going to push forward, right? Um, the kind of key players in this fight are the governor who has the ultimate say of what bills finally get signed into law or what he'll veto. Um, the speaker of the house who's elected by members of the house, he's elected by his peers to represent them because of that. There's often a sort of moderating effect in the Texas house, particularly, this is not always what happens in other legislative bodies, but the Texas house is uh, slightly more moderate because he is responsive to all of his members. Whereas we, the kind of third important player here, the big villain of the whole thing really is the Lieutenant Governor, uh, Dan Patrick. Mm -hmm. Um, He's elected statewide, but presides over the Senate and rules with an iron fist. Um, Are you saying that he does not rule with an iron fist? I can't say what I want to (laughs) say. (laughs) I'm like, moving on. Uh, But really uh, has a lot of control over what bills pass completely as a singular person um, has a lot of power there. So it makes him a very important player. So that's kind of the the landscape that we enter into this bullshit session. Thank you for that, I think, bigger picture uh, roadmap in a way. Because I think one of the things that I have found to be most confusing over these past few weeks is how quickly everything's happening. So it's like, okay, it's just good for me to know is like Joe, whoever, right. That, um, like there's a reason why it's such a short window and there's a reason why it didn't feel like this was happening, uh, last year, but it also felt like there was a lot of stuff that was happening last year as far as anti-trans, uh, I want to say legislation, but maybe that's the wrong word as far as um, bathrooms and uh, sports activities and things like that. Was that last year or was that two years ago? No, that was last year because we also have a habit here in Texas of governing around primary elections Mm -hmm. in particular and Mm -hmm. in folks uh, leading up to presidential elections trying to catapult themselves into the national spotlight by doing the most egregious, awful thing ever. Yeah. Texas is really a testing ground for some of the most radical far right policies in the country. Um, And they like to just throw things out here and kind of see what sticks. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, uh, the the guinea pigs there are, you know, the real people who live here. Right. right, Who are affected by legislating conspiracy theories constantly. Right. But when you really look at what's happening, right, we have a Republican primary that is essentially deciding the policy of this state for all of us. And we're talking about two to 5% of the electorate 
really determining the legislative agenda for all of us. Mm. And those folks are the furthest right, the folks who are always showing up in primaries. They skew older, they skew whiter, they skew richer, all of these sorts of things, and they don't represent the vast majority of people. So that's why you kind of get this conversation in an election year where we have this very far right conversation. Um, and then it bleeds into this legislative session that we have now. And so you're saying that the primaries are deciding the legislative priorities because of who is elected and the fact that it is beholden to those individuals to once they're in office to put forth the bills, correct? Yeah. Okay. We have lawmakers who don't feel like they represent every Texan, which is their actual constitutional obligation, right? They feel an obligation to the furthest right, the furthest folks who are showing up during those primaries. The joke I like to make this year is that you should subscribe to the Miami Herald if you want to know what's going to happen in Texas. <laughs> yes. no. I'm like, Texas Governor Ron DeSantis. <laughs> yeah, so can I go back to that? Like, um, you, you mentioned that this session feels different. Yeah. Um, can you, wh what do you think that's about? Um, you, do you know? Or, um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about that. I mean, I've only been working in Texas politics for 10 years. <laughs> And only, been a rough 10 years. <laughs> and only one of those sessions has been post-COVID, post-vaccines, post-accessibility for the public. And so this year, it feels like they're trying to make a strong comeback on legislating away people's rights. But I actually disagree with you, Charlie. I forgot your name for a second. <laughs> like, like we haven't known each other for years. I was going to call you Johnny. <laughs> hate that. <laughs> You could, you could give off a Johnny vibe, Charlie. Please it stop. was part of the disagreeing with you. <laughs> but I don't think here in Texas is the, the place where we experiment with policies. I think Texas is where policies come to be refined to stay in place. Because our legislature only meets every other year. They get the opportunity to see how these things happen in other states. They get the opportunity to see what sticks and lands in other states. And then Definitely this session, they sure. refine it when they get to the Texas legislature. And the version that happens here tends to stay. And is the version that they're trying to get to go to the Supreme Court. Right. This is a, the most litigious of the, the states that, that pass wild policies. And so they're also trying to do the furthest thing they can to kick policies up to the Supreme Court, like abortion, um, that we've already seen the ramifications of that. If there's one thing I could do, I would go back in time and kick Obama's ass for not appointing more federal judges. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely in retrospect, yeah. Yeah. like huge missed opportunity right there. So, okay, so just to kind of bring it back to the conversation that we're having. So people are elected, they put forth these bills, and then the point that happens then is they write up the bills and then propose them, and then they're brought forth, and I guess like you all said, there's like 5,000 of them this year. So how do they go from being just an idea to something that's on paper to then something that is put forth in front of the public? I don't know what you're going to say. There's this like fancy bill writing factory called Ledge Council where people submit ideas and they really just say, hey, I kind of want a law that does X, Y, and Z and I want it to go in this. You mean this citizens? No, le elected officials. Oh, okay, gotcha. Go and go. sometimes citizens who are in conversation with elected officials, sometimes think tanks, sometimes okay. like wildly conservative organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom or the Heritage Foundation trying to take away your rights or, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Um, yeah, I always think, I always think this is an interesting part because people think that maybe lawmakers write bills. No, they absolutely have, not. They have no idea how to write a bill. And if um, they did, they wouldn't pass it because it wouldn't be an official copy anyway. So yeah. they have to go through the ledge council, what it's called. Um, I don't know what the equivalent metaphor for it would be, but it's like submitting a paper to your English teacher and then getting it back with edits before you can submit it. Okay. Um, and so then they file the bill and then maybe the bill gets a hearing in whatever committee it's referred to. Every bill needs to get a committee and to provide opportunity for public input, but it only needs to do it once. Yeah. And again, the Speaker of the House and the Lieutenant Governor are the ones who get to decide which bills go to committees and what committees they go to, um, which is one oh. of the ways that they have a vast amount of power there is just determining 
if a bill gets a committee hearing or, yeah. you know, if it gets referred to a committee, they don't set the hearing, um, but and what committee it goes to. Um, that it can also, the venue of where that bill is being heard can also really affect how we're talking about it, right? Or whether that committee is stacked with their allies who are definitely going to pass it or whether they'll send it somewhere that does not have people who support it because they want that bill to die, you know? They get to make those decisions. Fuck. Yeah. Okay, so it's it's really these two people who are, like, processing all of this stuff and figuring out what is to come. And it, I guess that's the part where, like, I, as just, like, a, you know, an unelected official, uh, someone who's just, like, here in the world, I think that's where the whole political process begins to confuse me because Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, I want to continue advocating for my people. I want to continue showing up and doing everything that I can, but it's like the system's already in play at that point. Right. Yeah. But there's still a lot of advocacy that happens around it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. part of one of the reasons we have conversations like this is to help people understand that process to understand all of the different venues in which you can advocate. Right. Um, it's not often that we really see a lot of advocacy, you know, public advocacy necessarily around putting pressure on a speaker of the house or lieutenant governor. That, that a lot of that will happen in the back. That'll be conversations to with advocates and with lobbyists and folks like that that are trying to position their bills. Those are conversations that will happen for years. Mm-hmm. You know, they will be a part of political conversations will be a part of campaign conversations, all these sorts of things that you are trying to get your bill prioritized by that leadership. Um, I think a great example of this right now is Representative Donna Howard has a bill. She's an Austin-based representative, has filed a bill for several years on the tampon tax um, to alleviate the state taxes on um, tampons and other hygiene products. And I think there's kind of a larger list that they've included in it now had several hearings for years. I mean, several filings for years and years and years this year, the Republicans are really trying to make a play at women Mm. Uh, as they continue these attacks on many communities. They are really trying to hold on to like suburban white ladies. Right. And even though this is a democratic bill that they've ignored for many years, did not feel the need to prioritize suddenly, suddenly it seems like it might be a good idea to pass that bill and it becomes a speaker's priority, even though it's a democratic bill that has been proposed for many years. Interesting. Mm. So the winds can change, the winds can change, but there's understanding there, there's that venue, but there are 20 other places in the process in which there are different decision makers who are deciding to push something forward to keep it back, all these sorts of different things. And so a lot of our job as advocates is figuring out where that pressure point is in the process. Mm -hmm. Uh, We generally deal with these sort of public pressure points, um, which are things like committee hearings where folks can give testimony on a bill, register their opposition by dropping a card. We deal with outside pressure like rallies um, that can increase attention, media attention, that sort of thing. Really mobilizing people in those kind of big ways, watching in the gallery to give a sense that people are paying attention to what's happening, those sorts of things. That's generally where as kind of grassroots advocates, that's a lot of where our work happens. Yeah, I've definitely been following y'all on social media, not just because you're my friends, but because I really admire and appreciate the super important work that y'all are doing. And it's been really remarkable to see the turnouts that y'all have been able to uh, get people to to come out for and understand and support. I, I think that's just really amazing. I think that's part of the reason why we wanted to have this conversation sure. is that, you know, we're just like, two queer comedians who were sucking dick one day and then were holding microphones the next. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't know it was different days. <laughs> well, it was, it was, it was the same day, but, sure. uh, uh, you know, a star was born needless to say, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's like, right. Like this show queer town started off, you know, in a really silly way. And then we're finding ourselves in a very serious moment and it's like figuring out how can this show, exist in the time that it is operating within. And it really seems to me like a a lot more serious conversations are required of us and uh, certainly of anyone who is in the LGBTQ community in Texas. It's, you know, you you can't ignore what is happening. You need to be actively participating and helping alleviate the shitstorm. When did you start the podcast? 
Well, we started the podcast a year ago, but we started the variety show in 2017. And well, we were riding high in 2017. Shit was bad then too, Mace. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was still bad for people with uteruses, yeah. but when it came to LGBTQ rights, we were making progress. It looked like we were going to have rights and protections. You remember rights? Those were fun. I've never had them. I don't know about you. You're a <laughs> man. I'm Excellent a trans point. person. Excellent point. Okay. So I am going to try to articulate this question. I'm not smart, so I'm going to do my best here. But the sense that I have, because like in the level of detail that the two of you work, right? Like that can be, you know, for somebody who is not like in this can be a little overwhelming, right? Like, oh, wow. There's like so much going on. But the sense that I get from like what is the media is covering and what's going on is that there's like suddenly a lot of issues that um, I can't help but think like a lot of this is show business, right? Like a totally. lot of this is like a lot of these issues are sort of all these bills are um, almost like distraction mm -hmm. efforts, right? Not, not sort of like distraction. Okay. So like a I'm curious like what, what the view yeah. is from like from the inside yeah. um, on that. Well, and I think there's a historical perspective to it too, right? That um, LGBTQ folks have always been used as a distraction technique, policies and attacks against LGBTQ people, conspiracy theories against our community have always been a diversion tactic from the corruption, from the failures to provide real services from far-right people, mm -hmm. right? This has always been part of the playbook in this country to find scapegoats, right? right. Uh, we see it often in times of economic turmoil, uh, yeah. right? So that is part of what's playing into this right now, that we are, we are in an economic situation in which the folks in charge need us to be talking about something other right. than their policy failures that led us to this economic situation, right? Yeah. And they, they take communities that maybe folks don't have a lot of understanding of right, mm -hmm. and they they wedge in that um, lack of understanding, misinformation, and disinformation, and then they villainize a community and they target them. Mm -hmm. and, and so this is nothing new that we're seeing, right? But I think the intensity of it is definitely new. the The amount of pieces of legislation, and the the speed at which disinformation is becoming policy, I think is happening at a remarkable rate. I think that feels new to you. That feels new to okay. me. I think there are ways in which the conspiracies about our community and many others, right? Maybe maybe you have to go campaign a while on that, right? right. Before that idea really sticks like becomes fruition and then goes through a legislative process, right? We are at a time where, you know, issues particularly on voting rights right now too People just tweet out a conspiracy theory and it'll be a matter of weeks mm -hmm. before people are proposing laws to combat the conspiracy driven thought that they have created. Right. Yeah. Um, that that the speed at which that is happening um, is really quite remarkable. And it is making bills that don't make any sense uh, because they have no basis in reality, mm -hmm. right? They, they have no interest in actually affecting the reality in many of these, right? Uh, often they are pieces of show that they are just trying to pass to say that they have passed. Mm. Yeah. So that doesn't, I think, diminish the impact of those. For bills, sure. Right? No, and I don't want to say yeah. that, right? Like yeah. what yeah. happens when you legislate in conspiracy is real people get hurt. Right? Yeah. Like yeah. I can't help but think about the drag queen stuff that's going on. Yeah. Right. Where I was like, it, it truly felt like I turned around and I was like, wait, everyone's mad at drag queens. What yeah. happened? Like <laughs> we've been existing with them for a while. Yeah. I remember when drag race was talking about the anti-drag queen measures that were happening and you know, they don't film it live, right? right? There's a bit of a delay between when they film it and when it airs. And I was like, Oh fuck, I guess they were filming that recently. And, and like, that was my initial thought when I saw that. And then it was like, fuck, I need to sit with that for a second. Yeah. This truly, I think it is an issue in that. It's a great example of, um, how we take an area that right drag queens have become very prominent in the culture, yeah. um, but are not necessarily understood in the pop culture. Right. And that opens up a lot of space for folks um, to spread fear and to spread conspiracy theories. I mean, there's something to be said about how natural disasters and that economic downturn mm -hmm 
contribute to a level of fear in the public. Totally. And that fear is what creates the vacuum that can be filled with misinformation Mm. and disinformation. And so we're coming off of what was essentially a prolonged disaster of COVID-19. And that created a gap that started to be filled with the the vaccine mandates that started to there were the vaccine mandate bans really the masking bans and then the curriculum and the content bans in schools and then from there this idea that we had to excessively protect children to the point that we needed to then extend it into just banning drag queens from existence altogether because children can't exist in a world where drag queens exist and certainly they can't exist in a world where gender affirming care exists either God forbid. I mean, they're banning all of this. Literally, all of these you can trace back to a tweet. It's Charlie's not being facetious no. yeah. in the way that mm. gays frequently are. <laughs> like, that is a fact. <laughs> Me, particularly. Yeah. Or, you know, and many of them are connected to specific think tanks that are funded by billionaires, right? Like, there are mm-hmm. the ways in which the, the power structures of that also are very prominent mm-hmm. and very powerful. Um, but I think. In your in previous sessions, you needed that think tank to come up with your crazy idea. Now we have Twitter, mm. right? Like it is, you can go online and figure out whatever the conspiracy of the day is that people are talking about. Like even think about how quick we're not talking about these issues, yeah. Yeah. right? Mm. Like they're not talking about critical race theory anymore. Yeah, and they said I, I, they said just the other day it was going to kill us all. <laughs> and, uh, mm. and now not a peep <laughs> you know and I'm like eh, nothing changed yeah <laughs> wow that's, that's crazy such it wasn't that, that long yeah. ago no, that, totally. that yeah. was the only thing anybody was talking about and the the speed of that also makes the advocacy very difficult right the the venue of the fight is changing constantly right now yeah I, I've been thinking about that quite a bit it just feels like we are circling a drain in a bathtub and that is the only radius of conversation that we are allowing ourselves to have. And there's this whole, you know, bathtub to continue this metaphor that like could fill the air. It, it, there could be so many conversations that are in there. And yet maybe that's just how humans operate. Maybe at like a collective level. And we're talking about this many people, at least like the number of people who live in Texas or, you know, the United States, it's like, okay, you can only talk about like, I don't know, three to four things at a time. If maybe that is the case, but it, it just feels like it's minimizing so many things, right? Like population is increasing. It is only logical that there would be more and more ways of expressing yourself, more and more ways of being. And yet we're trying to minimize things even further further to go back to some archaic bullshit expectation and it's really troubling to me because at the forefront of what's going on here in texas is children actual children it's like do you not care about this being who is coming into their own and is figuring out who the hell they are and maybe they're butting up against expectations or gender norms or whatever but like this is a this is a real being right who deserves so much love well, and care even take even take the lgbtq issues out of it right they don't care about anything right this is a state that has the highest rates of uninsured people in the country mm-hmm. right this is a state that is now like starting to lead the country in gun deaths right this is uh, the hardest state in the country to cast a ballot our constitutional right um they do not care about what is happening to real people, right? Like this is a, a, a power exercise. These tactics that they use, these distraction tactics are about holding on to power. Um, and, and unfortunately, they're, again, when they weaponize that power, right? When they have really cemented it in the ways they have because of partisan gerrymandering, because of run amok campaign finance, all of these things, they can hold on to these seats without passing policies that are popular. Mm-hmm. Right. And that that leads to this situation where anything could ha- any bill could pass. And I wouldn't be surprised in Texas at this point. So how do you stay ahead of it? I, I mean, like, truly, like this is an honest question. It just feels like how does one try to stay ahead of these things? Is there any way to do that? <laughs> it is a good question. <laughs> 
You're a smarter strategist than I I don't think I am. You're the (laughs) smartest comms person ever, first of all, and you can hear it very clearly on this podcast. I'm just like sitting in my room all day with a whiteboard, drawing a web like Alice in the L word. And then I translate it for the people. (laughs) But like about like Republican funders and like where this is all coming from. Um, To be real with you, uh, this is all predominantly being funded by folks who run cash uh, payday loanings, loan stores across payday lenders across the state of Texas, oil and gas daddies. Motherfuckers in this state, though. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Payday lenders. Yeah. So oil and gas daddies who are like super conservative, but funding all of these campaigns, and I think it's all because they want to distract from how they are perpetuating uh, economic inequities. Yeah. And how they are perpetuating this industry that is fundamentally killing the planet and for future wealth, generations right? and hoarding wealth. Yeah. Texas has a billion dollar surplus this year or million dollar surplus this year. Jeez. The point is, we have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. We could be using it to address any of these issues that they claim are crisis issues. But instead of putting money where their mouth is, they want to attack marginalized communities. What is unique in this particular moment is that trans people represent such a small segment of the population, but we take up such an enormous amount of media attention mm-hmm. and it, it legislative attention yeah. in what these attacks are about. I forgot the question already. What Love the, the answer question? regardless of what yeah. <laughs> who's, who's a great How do we is. stay above it? Ahead. How do we stay ahead of it? Oh, but above? Well, above. Yeah, that's a good pivot. Well, I'm a top. I, I will How say, do we top it? <laughs> <laughs> can, can, can we bottom this? <laughs> I love that you all are exposing who you are <laughs> in this part of the conversation SLS. regardless. That's silly um, I don't know. I don't know if we can necessarily get ahead of it, right? Because... I don't want to be in the business uh, trying to out conspiracy the conspiracy. Listen, like that sounds too difficult on my brain. <laughs> okay, I don't, I don't know if I can go all the way there. But what, what I do think is important is I think too often we feel as though we're on the defensive as advocates, as progressive people. Um, we feel like we're on the defensive. And when we are operating from defensive, I think we're generally operating on their terms, on the terms of debate that the most crazy and far right people have set for us, right? We're, we're having conversations about children attending drag shows. That is what the conversation is, right? Yeah. I'm like, I've never seen a child. On drag. I don't, those aren't the drag shows I'm going to <laughs> let me tell you. Right. And still we feel like we're in a position to go and defend that. Right. And there is a place for that. And drag can be adapted, right? It, like any other art form, it can be appropriate for every level. Right. But when they push us into a corner to talk about things that we don't want to talk about, then we're not talking about what we do. We're not talking about our shared values. We're not talking about our vision for the future. We're not talking about the things that bring us together. We're only defending ourselves and operating from that place of weakness doesn't bring anyone with us, right? People don't want to just be defending themselves. They want to believe in something and they want to fight for something. And uh, I think that is part of the debate that, um, gets lost often and and we have to recenter ourselves and what we actually believe and in what our vision for this state is, because that's why we do the work. We do this work because we believe we can make a better life for people. Um, and it's not just about defending ourselves. Did you listen to the first time I was on this podcast? Cause <laughs> you're giving. Sure. I, I've giving listened to every episode so of whatever this show is. You know? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, I really think that we need to uh, give up on cynicism and that we need to give up on thinking that our voice doesn't matter, that our actions don't matter, that we can't effectuate change every day in some small way through what we do. We we build the world we want to live in one action at a time every day. And the more that we feed into that cynicism, that's what they want, babe. Don't give it to them. Yes, they want us to fight amongst each other, right? They want us to get pissed off and exhausted and all these things. And it, it is about those small actions every day. I always go back to this when we talk about voter registration because this is the hardest state in the country to register someone to vote, right? And you like really gotta like put a, put a clipboard in a hand to really do it. And what that means is you're dealing with generally thousands of rejections when you do this. You are oh, yeah. a very high rejection rate of like when you are actually having those conversations. And what we try to recenter people in, it is a like voter registration is a very powerful act in this country, right? It is someone deciding that their voice matters. 
And for many folks, those are people who have sat on the sidelines for a long time. And so when we can make that, that one person, you are helping that person take autonomy over their own life, right? That is what voting is. It is about deciding your say in a community and about the future of this community for yourself and your friends and your family. And so every single person I've registered, even if we don't win an election, even if we never win an election, every single person that I registered mattered because I got to help them take part of that power. And nobody gets to take that away, regardless of all these laws, regardless of all these fights, that inner power that someone has when they recognize their place in this fight, that always matters. Absolutely. Did did you know that I registered people to vote when I was 19? No. <laughs> Were I, we supposed to? What did you what did you want the answer to that question? Was that, <laughs> did you want me to be impressed? We're just going to roast like, I you. Mace was like did you know that famously I registered people? Did, Did you know, know that famously I registered the most number of voters in the state of Texas and El Paso in the year 2015? Because speak on, it. Speak on well, it. three thousand. Experience doing that. My experience. I'm sorry that we mocked you about doing this. We believe that everyone should register. No, you truly, you truly gave such an impassioned <laughs> and then just of just like <laughs> helping people find power. And Mace was like, "I did that too." And you were like, "Shut up!" I, <laughs> everyone but Mace. Please. <laughs> I didn't know what else to say, you guys, okay? It was really beautiful, and it was really moving, and I was like, you know what? Uh, redacted number of years ago, I did that, and it really moved me, too, and I loved it. And you know what, gang? We got to cut to commercial, okay? So stick around, because we've got more Queer Town when you come back. come back and we have refilled our glasses spoiler alert we were drinking earlier i was like sorry i'm yelling um no (laughs) yellow way yellow way uh so uh if you're at home pour yourself a little glass Why does the sound go on for so long? How big is the glass? That's how much we drink. Yeah. Um, Every time. That's without me, fail. Me right now. God, I know. This is such a, like, I know we have an agenda, but I just have to ask, because one of you referenced it earlier, how many of the offices in the Capitol have booze inside of them? Uh, I would say nearly 100%. <laughs> Though there are many far-right offices that may not partake okay. or... Mm-hmm. Religious reasons, and or there are many, uh, some offices don't accept lobby gifts or lobby things like that, um, who are often who provide those beverages. Uh, beverages. Uh, they just have it on hand, and we're not going to have any. Would you like some? Only the ones I hang out when. Gotcha. I can't tell a single story that I want to right now. <laughs> it's taking like so much within me to like keep my job. <laughs> so I, I've got some. Uh, a pivot that I think would keep your job that oh, you can speak to. Perfect. So we have developed a little list of heartwarming questions because we kind of foresaw as ended up being the case that the first part of this episode was going to be a little, um, you know, rightfully dramatic. Oh, cool. Oscar is now with us. Speaking of drama. Hi, Oscar. Hey, Oscar. What's up? Um, okay. But my heartwarming questions. Uh, okay. Do you remember how you felt the first time you testified before a committee? And what is something that you would say to that version of yourself? Audrey's face. I, I don't <laughs> remember. I, remember I don't heartwarming. Yeah, I'm I don't kidding. know if I had thought about it before, actually. When was the first time you testified? I think it would have been... I. Um, I couldn't testify for the first couple of years I was around the Capitol because I worked in the building. Um, and so when I left, I helped write a bill um, with Representative Gina Hinojosa from Austin that would outlaw the gay and trans panic legal defense, which is a loophole that exists in the law in many, um, in many states, the majority of states. 
um, in which if you find out someone is gay or trans, um, you can legally murder them. Um, and is a like rightful legal defense that the panic that you are filled with from finding out this information can put you into a a murderous haze. Wait, can I as a gay this person claim that? that? <laughs> I know. I, 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 I did forget it was I've met some gays that have caused me to panic and yeah. I was like, I could kill you. Certainly. <laughs> okay, okay. okay. I, I'm uh, sorry I got into the specifics of the bill. Gay on gay crime. <laughs> I had a thought and I'm not going to voice it. <laughs> Please okay. do. But it was a heartwarming thing because I was a college student and I like literally read about this issue in the paper. There was a case in Austin that had utilized this case. Fuck. And I was like, oh, I know people at the Capitol. We should do something about that. Right. It was one of those moments where I was like, oh, this is what this is about. It is about like taking something from our lived experiences and actually trying to do something about it in the state. Right. And so the first time I got to testify was on a bill that I had helped like write. Um, as a college student, which was like a really powerful experience, nerve wracking experience, yeah. uh, particularly to like talk about being a queer young person and to do so like in front of <laughs> all of these lawmakers. Yeah. Um, but it actually ended up that the bill was referred to the committee of the lawmaker that I used to work for. And so she actually chaired the meeting that I got to testify at. And so sat there and like just beamed throughout the whole thing. So like took what could have been a very like nerve wracking experience and it got to be a very like beautiful one despite the fact that that bill is still not passed um, all these years later. And it really should. It's a very common sense bill. The first time I ever testified was for the transgender bathroom bill legislation that would have uh, restricted the bathroom that I could use, which is, you know, I flew into Austin from El Paso the night before. I got picked up from the airport by a friend who brought my favorite snacks. Aww. And I got to stay with friends the night before and I didn't sleep at all the night before. I remember that just like staying up on the couch, writing my testimony, rewriting my testimony, practicing my testimony. And I woke up that morning to go to the Capitol at seven in the morning. And I was greeted at the Capitol with Starbucks coffee and given this like VIP access treatment because I was part of the invited testimony. And so I got to testify for longer than other folks about how important gender affirming care was to me and how important it was to live as, you know, a trans masculine person in that space. And I, it was the first time I was in a space in the state of Texas that was full of trans people from every corner of the state. Mm. Isn't that the funny ironic part about this work is like a lot of the queer spaces I've been in are at the Capitol, right? During these hearings where they're like trying to take away our rights, right? I'm like, quite funny. We beautiful. It's a beautiful. It is. It's so beautiful. All the drag queens showed up. I was like, I mean, honestly, that looks like a party in there. Yeah. Honestly, it was the littest waiting room (laughs) of any of the times I've been at the Capitol. I'm like, this is roaring. Roaring We have so much fun when they're trying to take away our rights. We are having a fun in those committee rooms. (laughs) Literally, and every time they take away our rights, I'm getting gayer. I swear to God. like, time, I'm we like, know where the booze is. Come with. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I got something to prove at this point. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm getting gay every day despite these motherfuckers. Exactly. Live, even if it's just out of spite. Purely. You mentioned this earlier, and I just hadn't thought about this, about the two of you being queer and walking around that space. Wait, uh, wait, wait. feels... They never answered my question fully. What was your question? What advice would you give to yourself oh, the first time you testified? Oh, that's true. Oh, yeah. Go well, back. I thought we moved on from that. No. This I'm, is, this is mean, the last I mean, episode look. of Drag Race where you have to look at the picture of your <laughs> child self and give them advice. No, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, y'all roasted the hell out of me earlier. We can move on from my thing. This, this episode's not about me. I, I do want to share this quote. In the first testimony I ever gave to the legislature, I included this quote from a poem that I really loved. And you can't find this poem anywhere for some reason anymore. But the line was, Our bodies have not always been ours, but they have always been beautiful. And the number of people that came up to me in the committee overflow room after I delivered that testimony just to say thank you 
like that feeling is what I hold on to when I do this work. And then it, it was in that moment that I realized that we're not testifying to change the minds of the legislators on the committee when we show up to the Capitol to fight against these attacks on our community. We are testifying because the entire world is watching what is happening in these committee hearings in Texas right now. And you are speaking to the transgender youth that are going to come after you and you need to do something to keep them going and to keep them here. I think that is so, it's so true. And I think we also have to remember, right, that again, so much of this is, these laws are rooted in conspiracy theories that try to take away our humanity. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what we try to encourage people to do with their testimony is to humanize themselves. That I might not be able to change a lawmaker's mind on this issue, right? But I could show them the real impact. And even if they are over there on their phone or they tweeting or whatever, enough of us can go and talk about the real impact on our lives. And that sticks with someone, whether they like it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, whether it changes their mind or not, right? Humanizing ourselves is important for those lawmakers. It's important for the people who spread these conspiracy theories. And it's important for the communities that it targets, right? That we speak up and we show that we will not go into the shadows. Uh, we will not let them spread these conspiracy theories in a vacuum where we do not put forward what the reality is, right? That is a lot of what this is. And so showing up as our authentic selves, really doing that, right? It, it, doing so in the ways that like fit into the legislative process is not always the most fun way to like be your authentic <laughs> self, certainly. Uh, but I think it's important that, you know, I show up there in my cowboy hat and manicure because that really is who I am every day, right? <laughs> and it confuses the hell out of them. They just don't <laughs> even know what to do with it every single time, right? And I love that, right? <laughs> I'm making them really think about what is going on. Um, and I think it always has an impact, even if we don't see it immediately. Fuck yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, that's literally the point of this show. It's like when we did Queer Town the Live Variety Show, which we continue to do, we don't get to have this in-depth of a conversation. And when we launched the podcast, it was really, you know, who can we sit down with and have these, you know, behind-the-scenes conversations about what the hell it is that we're going through in this moment that is incredibly turbulent and is incredibly charged and is very traumatic for a lot of people. Um, and I'm just so grateful to have y'all hear it with us. Yeah. Is that what carries you through like this, the, the, the level of, <laughs> please stop trying to mic the cat. The cat does not want to be mic'd. <laughs> we've tried, we've tried other day. We've, we've, we've tried a lot. Um, no, do you think that that's what carries you through? Cause I must imagine that like being in that space where you do show up in a cowboy hat and your manicure and you show up as like a proudly trans person that you, um, that and all the dirty looks that you must get, all of the comments that you must get, like the, I'm assuming, thick skin that you have. Like, is that idea of like, I'm going to continue to be here in your space because of who we are and how we represent ourselves? Do you, is that what kind of carries you through this work? Because this is, is a tough state to do this work. And this is a tough state to be who we are and who y'all are. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And and certainly it's a part, right? But I'm like, I also show up because it's my right. Yeah. And they think that they have a monopoly on our rights. And um, the ability to go and speak, the ability to go and make my voice heard in that capital, yeah, they can't take that away. They would like to. They like to try to limit it. They like to try to limit testimony and cut corners and do all these things. But when I show up and I do that and I make my voice heard, right, like that's important to me just as how I sleep at night, right? Yeah. That mm -hmm. I show up for myself um, first and foremost, right? And I show up for the folks that I know can't show up. I always try to remind folks too, as Austinites, like so much of this process occurs in person. Yeah. And it still affects the people in El Paso. It still affects the people down in the RGV for whom it is like more difficult to get here. They can't go on a lunch break right. and drop a car, they, right? They can't make those same things. And so I think we always have an, ad an added obligation as folks who live here and have access to the capital um, to do that and to take up that space. I literally moved 500 miles away from El Paso yeah. just to be here every day. Yeah. I was thinking about that when we were reflecting on your first 
episode with us because that's literally why you said you moved to Austin. Right. Yeah, yeah. I I lived 28 years in El Paso, Texas, and I never once thought that I would need to move here to be able to participate in the legislative process or in advocacy. But there was a point in the 2021 session where they kept calling us back for special session after special session after special session where I said, I am going to move there and fight as hard as I can until I can't do it anymore. But the reality is, uh, when I reflect back on my life and what the hardest period of it was, it, it was that space between coming out at 17 years old and turning 20 when I could not access transgender health care. And nothing in the world is ever going to be as hard as the mental space I was in, knowing that this healthcare existed somewhere in the world, but I just wasn't able to access it in El Paso because there were no doctors that were willing to see me despite the years of evidence, despite the research that I would show up to offices begging to be seen with. Fuck. And so when the fight became about preserving that... I'm afraid of nothing. Yeah. The Speaker of the House can be standing before me and I'm going to talk to him. He is going to know a trans person and I'm not going to be any different than I am on this podcast, if we're being honest. I am. I can't be anything other than my authentic self. I refuse to be. <laughs> I refuse to be, no, right? should you be. I spent so many years of my life hiding who I was and I've yet to even come to a point where those years even out, right? I came out at 17. I've lived 13 years out and that's still four years left to even get to a point where I've spent half of my life being my authentic self as I did hiding. And so knowing that, I mean, I am fearless and afraid of nothing in that building because nothing will ever be worse than that feeling. And I, at the moment that I came out, I came out with a sheer determination that nobody else should ever feel that way. And so in that building, it doesn't matter. That is my capital. And mm. trans people will be here. They will feel comfortable. And if you threaten that, I will fight you. That's it. And it's so interesting. I'm like, our experience. And we are back. <laughs> so that was an interesting little uh, pivot there. Uh, our SD card ran out of memory mid-story for Charlie. Oscar was screaming in the background. <laughs> we did not capture me yelling, Oscar, shut the fuck up. Uh, but that did happen. Uh, anyways, we're back here in the Queer Town Clubhouse, continuing like, to... It wasn't on tape, but he repeated it anyway, so definitely. <laughs> I wanted everyone to know that uh, there was some frustration going on. But you know what? We were back here in the Queer Town Clubhouse. Uh, this episode continues to move... Persevere. Yeah. And you know what? That's what we're doing as queer people here in Texas. Amen, so baby. it's a metaphor. There you go. It is a metaphor. We shall overcome And you know what? Podcast. We've got some heartwarming questions for you. Oh, really, bitch, huh? <laughs> okay, okay, I see how it is. Well, you know what? Doors that way, just kidding. Um, anyways, we've got heartwarming questions. Um, Javi, do you have these pulled up? Okay, I got I them now. I got them. Okay, uh, why don't you ask one? <laughs> I think I've done enough talking for a few minutes. I'm just going to hang back and have a cash time. You know, this is a good question now that we've had some drinks. What are some things you're doing to stay sane and optimistic during this time? No, just are you optimistic? I, can I tell you the deep sigh that I just saw happen on this couch? You two <laughs> and I'm locked like, Take eyes. Take care and- of yourself. I'm like, the what? <laughs> yeah, visually. Uh, you're, some- you're better at that than I am. I make a joke frequently that I'm never as in shape as I am when there's a legislative session. <laughs> yeah. The same cannot be said of old Charles Bonner. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's not how we're dealing with it. Old, old Charles Bonner up the road. That's that man. I go to the gym three to four times a week and do yoga two to three times a week during the legislative session. Pretty real. Okay. Wow. I literally, have you seen these biceps? <laughs> um, I am. I'm fairly religious about it because it's the only way I stay sane when I spend so much time overthinking how 
we can legally defeat these bills, how we can write amendments to water down these bills that are really harmful, and how we can get people engaged in this process. I really think about it 24-7. Even when I'm at the gym, I'm thinking about it. But as much energy as I can expel out of my body to be able to go to sleep at night, you know, I... I do. I take care of myself quite a bit, probably more during the legislative session than I do at any other point in my life. I do. I do. Genuinely, we kind of joked about this earlier, but I do genuinely feel like I, I am owning more space as a queer person every single time I have to like go and fight up there. And it makes me want to like, go to the gay bar and like dance more and occupy our spaces. And it makes me want to tip drag queens and it makes me want to like wear dresses and like really expand even what I, how I have like allowed myself to show up. Right. And like mm. to really, I'm like trying to liberate myself out here. Right. And I think every single time that I am like challenged by them, every time they come up with like a crazier thing, because right. Like part of this is like, it's our job to think, to think about all the crazy things that they say, right? Like so, yeah. some people get to ignore that and that's cute. Um, like it's our job to figure out how to respond to it, which means really understanding where it comes from, really right. understanding how they're addressing it. Right. And it can like really occupy a lot of your brain space. Right. And so to like be in these spaces with queer people is like the rejuvenating thing for me and to like celebrate that and to be joyous and to like dance the like, house down like that is my self-care is to like go and rage dance out my energy um and that does a lot for me and i think the things that keep me optimistic if we can use the word optimistic um is all the people that are showing up you know yeah i guess a better way of saying this how do you stay hopeful right yeah we Mm -hmm. talked about that on your episode was just like how to stay hopeful in a place like texas and it's vital. Yeah, it, it is absolutely critical because hope is the only thing keeping democracy alive. If you do not think that things can get better, democracy is dead. The entire purpose of this thing is that we come together to believe that the future could be better if we tried, right? And so if we allow ourselves to get hopeless about what's going on, then that's it. That's the whole game. It's over, right? And so to remain joyous and to find those moments of optimism is really critical. And for me, it is always the people who are showing up, many for the first time. And I think so much of our work centers around helping people navigate that process for the first time, breaking down the information barriers that exist so that somebody can make their voice heard. And I think what has been so powerful for me this session is seeing all those people show up the second time. Mm-hmm. And what I'm seeing is the five or six people that I have a training with are then sharing that information and they're bringing people in and they're answering the questions that normally someone would have to go to me to answer, right? Or they would have to go to one of these advocates. Those people are becoming experts on this and they're drag queens and they're bartenders mm-hmm. and they are just trans people living their lives who know that they have to become an expert on this to fight back and they're sharing that information. And that part of this is so powerful to me to see people really claiming their power and bringing people into the process. And that's how I know things are going to get better, Mm -hmm. right? Because people can't take that power away from those folks. Years ago, I was doing a volunteer training and this is piggybacking off of what you were just talking about. And I was training this woman and it, it was all about, you know, the big ask of, you know, knocking on someone's door, doing the block walk and, you know, making sure that, you know, the political campaign that I was working for had their information and that they were registered to vote and all of these really important things. And she said, oh, but that's an uncomfortable ask. And to me, I I realized in that moment, you have to lean into the discomfort because that's part of what we're dealing with here in Texas is that there's so many people who, for a menagerie of reasons, are uncomfortable talking about politics. They do not feel 
at all uh, empowered, right? Well, to, and to I speak think, up to, or to vote. And that's intentional, right? It is. It and is. I think yes. we have to name that too, right? The fact that so many people feel uncomfortable talking about politics is a power structure to keep those in politics in power. Yeah. Well, to well, keep this not talking about what's going on, to make us where it is a social taboo so that people are not getting involved in that process that belongs to them. Exactly. Uh, and, and that there's so much that is happening right now that is happening during the work day, right? And there's people who have nine to fives, they have hourly jobs, whatever it is. And it's like, how are they supposed to process what is going on at the Capitol, these committee hearings, all of these important bills that are uh, going on while they have their own job? And to me, that's part of the messiness of it all. And that's part of the vitality of it all is that you, we have to figure out how to hold space for these things. And part of that is recognizing our emotions. And we're just not primed to do that. I mean, this is like a bigger picture conversation, obviously. But it like in that moment when I was training that volunteer, it really was like, you need to lean into the discomfort because that is what is going to propel you to that next level. What is a one sentence message that you would deliver to queer youth or just to anyone who is listening to this episode right now? It does get better and it has gotten so much better. Mm. Even if right now everything feels so hard, it is just a retaliation to the amount of progress that we've made as a, as a trans person, I've lived through an era where this healthcare was not accessible in the state of Texas. I've seen it be built up. I did the workshops to help people understand why this healthcare was important across the state. And I've seen people grow in their knowledge and their competency of this care. And we have that framework now, and they're trying to take it away, but we can fight back. We haven't lost yet. For so long, we've talked about these bands like we've already lost and we haven't. We can fight back. We deserve to fight back. We are worth fighting back. We deserve health care. We deserve rights. We deserve protections and visibility. Yeah. We can do that, but we need to say it in that way, not from a place of fear. Right, We need to share the vision that we want for the world. And it is one where we belong, where we have power. And it is also one where the people that think that they are afraid of us also have access to more freedom and more liberation mm -hmm. because of the possibility that we embody and the freedom that we embody every day. Hell yeah. So, um... Uh, this doesn't necessarily need to be a closing point, and I'm sure you get asked this a lot, um, but it would be helpful to have as a part of the podcast, which is just like, what are the things that people who are listening can do? What are like the tangible things that they can do? I think first of all is getting informed, right? Listening to podcasts like this, talking to people about the process, following groups like the Texas Freedom Network, like Equality Texas, the Trans Education Network of Texas, Move Texas. These are great resources that are really invested in making sure people understand the process, right? Making sure that people understand the ways in which they get involved. And then making sure you're following the action alerts that people will put um, from those organizations uh, that both of us will put out there. There will be times when we need people to come and drop a card registering for or against a bill where we might need folks to come and tell their stories as part of testimony or where we might just need folks to show up and make some noise, right? To really disrupt the process, to draw attention to what's happening. And so making sure that you're following because things happen very quickly. We do not, we, as we mentioned, we operate in a very short time period here. And so making sure that you understand the process, understand how you can make a difference um, and then show, make that big step to show up for the first time whether it's at a rally on a weekend when you can make it work or maybe it's dropping a card right on your way to work or when you're coming home, whatever it is, but making sure that you're doing that and then making sure that you're bringing a friend with you when you do it, that you are expanding the number of people that have access to this information so that they can advocate for themselves and for our community. Excellent. Fuck yeah. I mean, that was a fairly comprehensive answer. I don't think there's a one size fits all. Sure answer to this question and I think that the most impact that we can effectuate in this lifetime is by 
being unabashedly ourselves and living in our values and trying to share them with the people around us. And that starts by believing in yourself, I think, right? And like finding that confidence within yourself, building a community around you that loves and supports you. And if you don't know where to find that, like you can find me at the Capitol, girl, at any point. Like, and we will, I mean, organizing at its core is about building a community of people who share your values and are ready to fight alongside you to build that world that we deserve to live in. And if and it's a beautiful place. That community is a beautiful place, right? Mm-hmm. It's always what John Lewis referred to as like the beloved community. Right? The beloved community? I didn't know that. Yeah, and so it's like the, pl- the place where we all actually take care of each other, right? And even in those like horrible moments at the Capitol when we are having to testify in bills that we shouldn't be having to testify, when we are spending all day and all night there when that is we should be at home with our families and like enjoying our lives right the community that is there the people that take care of one another um the people that show up for one another even when they're not affected by you would be so surprised to find the breadth of human beings that are in these waiting rooms waiting to testify right it is not just people who are impacted by these bills it's people who care about people right and that's a beautiful thing to see and I think it's something that everyone should be a part of at some point in time. I think it's a deeply like vulnerable place yeah. to be in for some people. And I think totally. that we grow up in a world that doesn't take care of us. No. We grow up in systems that don't take care of us. And so to learn, and it, this was a, a journey for myself as well, to learn to be in a space. And as I, I mentioned the first time I was testifying, there were people all around me taking care of me that day and I didn't it was so unfamiliar to me because I had spent my whole life taking care of others mm-hmm. that to receive that love from my community felt so unfamiliar to me and today at the Capitol I made so many friends just because they saw how I hugged the people around me mm-hmm. that they were like hey who are you <laughs> everybody there need a hug everybody need a goddamn hug everybody and like we pulled hug. people in today right yep. to be part of our movement to be part of our community every time that they attack us we get stronger mm-hmm. and it's hard when people ask me like what keeps you going what keeps you hopeful it's the immense amount of love that I am surrounded in yeah. and strength and resiliency that I've seen be built up. Mm-hmm. And we talk about how we don't need to be this resilient. Like maybe we don't, but we are. Mm-hmm. And we are extremely powerful in that resiliency. And this is a community that is going to build that world that we deserve to live in because we have been forged by fire in the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a reason they're attacking us so hard. And it is because we are stronger than them. And it is because we will be stronger than them. And I believe that so deeply. I echo that 100%. I love y'all so much. Thank you yeah. for visiting Queer Town. Thank you for just sharing your lived knowledge, the amazing beautiful experiences that you have been able to cultivate within your own lives and how you've been able to parlay that into these amazing community leader and educator roles i don't know i feel like i learned a lot today javi i don't know about you yeah no absolutely thanks for shitting on us too we need that we We need to get we need to get brought down a notch yeah here to keep you humble. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have had quite an episode. If you've been listening to this at home, please check out how you can get involved here in the state of Texas. It is a vital time to get involved and to love upon your fellow queer and trans community. So from all of us here in the Queer Town Clubhouse, thank you for spending the past hour plus with us. And uh, we hope to see you next time or hear you or you'll hear us. You know what? We're going to... We're going to hit that and Like record. and subscribe. <laughs> like and subscribe if you want more. <laughs> stay queer, queers. Yes, stay queer. Bye, y'all. Well, that's all, folks. Queer Town is a Hey Kerwick production. Each episode is lovingly produced by yours truly and Kristen Washington. Our editor is Drewski Hewlett, and our project manager is Elizabeth Easterly. Visit Queertown on Instagram and Twitter for more updates on today's episode. Thanks for being here, and thanks for being queer. Bye, babes. Bye.